Accessing library computer data. Level 9 authorization required. Command codes verified. Welcome to Moms Going Boldly, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. Moms Going Boldly is two moms who love Star Trek and who also happen to have children on the autism spectrum. We talk about the new Star Trek Discovery TV series, as well as any autism issues we see along the way. I am your host, Elizabeth, and with me is my co-host, Vicki. Hi, I'm Vicki. We are Moms Going Boldly. And welcome back to Moms Going Boldly, where today we are talking about Star Trek Discovery Season 4, Episode 3, Choose to Live. Did you like this episode, Vicki? I did. I thought it dragged a little bit, but I did. Good. I liked it, too. I actually uh, liked it a lot more than I was expecting to because I thought it was going to be a lot of more grief. Yeah, I know what you're Discussion saying. and grief processing. And it was to some degree, but not overly. And I, and I actually liked it. And there was a lot of interesting action and interesting character development. And I actually really, I really liked it quite a bit. Yeah, I did like the fact that, yes, some of it had to do with the anomaly. But then there yep. was another side story that sort of had to do with the anomaly, but not really. It was like the alien of the week kind of thing. Yes, but it, the alien of the week kind of thing was part of what made Trick fun. That's yeah, what I'm saying. Decades, it so, it yeah. wasn't an entire episode dedicated to the anomaly. They had another storyline. Yes, yeah, and I really like that. So the episode title is called Choose to Live. And last week we had talked about that we thought this was going to be about Book and Book dealing with his, his grief and you know that being in some way a theme related to his grief and it wasn't I was really glad about that (laughs) so the title choose to live refers to a phrase used by the Kowat Milat our listeners will remember the Kowat Milat is a Romulan sisterhood that are based on Navar now which is the planet formerly known as Vulcan And they are the group that lives by absolute candor. And Michael Burnham's mom is a member of the Coat Malat. Right. And she was found after she came through time and landed in 900 years in the future. And she was found by the Coat Malat nurse back to health and joined them. So this story has the Kuat in it, which I like. I think it's a, a very interesting cultural component that they have woven into these stories. So we start off with a scene from a, a, a ship that is delivering dilithium to a planet who is really looking forward to getting it. And as they're just about ready to beam the dilithium down, there's an intruder alert and a Kawat Malat sister appears, I think there was a couple other sisters, Yeah. and they're trying to steal the dilithium. And the one sister says she doesn't want to hurt anybody. And she says, choose to live to one of the Starfleet officers. But he says he can't, he can't help it. He's got to stop her from stealing the dilithium. She's got her mission. He's got his. And they're in conflict. And so she ends up killing him. Yeah. And she does so reluctantly and sadly. But still, she kills him, which, of course, triggers um, a response from the Federation and from Starfleet. And it brings in... President Tarina of the planet Navarre, even though they're not yet part of the Federation, they're still holding off being members of the Federation, as well as Michael Burnham's mom, Gabrielle. She's there for the Kowat Malat 
because they've identified this Coat Malat sister as a Romulan named Javini, who is a citizen of, of Navarre and a sister of the Coat Malat. And so they essentially want to have the Coat Malat sort of handle this. It's like an internal Coat Malat thing. And so Navarre wants the Coat Malat to handle it. Coat Malat want to handle it. And so President Rulick says, okay, we're going to let you handle it. But, you know, Michael Burnham has to go. We need a representative of the Federation there, which is kind of cool. We have this, like you said, this sort of little side story that's sort of related to the overall thing in that it's related to the dissemination of the dilithium and the bringing together of the Federation again. You know, they've got these two different storylines pulling the Federation back together while trying to stop the anomaly from tearing it apart. They put together this team, and Saru recommends Tilly to join Burnham on this mission. And it's really interesting because Tilly is talking to Saru early in the episode about how she and Culber have been talking about how important it is for her to get out of her comfort zone. What did you think of that? Well, I guess that makes sense. But I think that Tilly is realizing that she doesn't want to be command and maybe doesn't even want to be Starfleet. That's the impression I'm getting. Interesting. So getting her out of her comfort zone. I mean, I could see the wisdom in that. But eating macaroni and cheese is not really (laughs) getting out of your comfort zone. Watering plants is not something that takes you out of your comfort zone. Yeah. His advice may be valid, but she's not going about it the right way. Perhaps. Well, and I'm thinking that this whole getting out of her comfort zone thing, to me, supports your theory that she is struggling with the loss of everything she knew 900 years previously. Yeah. Because that was the ultimate getting out of your comfort zone, you know, traveling 900 years into the future. And if she, in order to avoid the discomfort of this new reality has been relying on, you know, creating a comfort zone for herself. And routine and yeah. And routine, etc. It means she's not really facing the reality of 900 years in the future. And so I right. kind of was thinking that this idea of Culver's was to sort of ease her into accepting Which, 900 years in the future can't go back. Yeah. And she even mentions her mother later on. Yes. And we know they didn't have a good relationship. And like I said last week, I'm not sure what week it was, saying, yes, we're going to go 930 years in the future. And the reality of actually doing it is two different things. Yeah. So I like this development with Tilly. I I feel like I want to follow along and see what happens and hope that she, you know, finds her way through this process. And there's a conversation about how, as you mentioned, actually she asks Saru if she can water the plants in his quarters because she wants to do something different. And like you said, you know, okay, how is that outside of her comfort zone? But she may have gotten herself into such a structured routine that eating macaroni and cheese is an adventure. I guess, yes. (laughs) But we know she doesn't like cheese, so I don't... Yeah. Getting out of her comfort zone isn't going to miraculously make her like cheese. So there wasn't really any point in that, except it was just Tilly being Tilly. Right. So the other storyline we've got in this episode, we've got the storyline of this apparent Kawat Milot renegade who killed a Starfleet officer. And then we have the other story, which is the continuation of the anomaly story, where Stamets is trying to go through all the data that they collected he and Book collected inside the anomaly, and there's a lot of it. And he's doing what he calls a tachyon treasure hunt because he's convinced that this is a, what did he say? It was like a newly formed wormhole? Yes. He's calling it the dark matter anomaly, or DMA for short, and it fits like four out of five 
check boxes for a newly formed wormhole, but he can't find the tachyon signature that the wormhole should have. And so as we're reminded, the Navarre Science Council has offered to evaluate the data. And so he and Book go to Navarre to meet with the Science Council so they can look at this data and see what kind of information that they can offer. We've also got a continuation of the storyline with Gray Tall's android body. It's complete. And so one of the guardians that we met last season when we went to Trill with Adira, Xi, comes on board as a hologram and is going to perform a Jantara. If anyone remembers from the Deep Space Nine episode, oh God, what was the name of that episode where Dax had her Jantara performed on the station? Oh, I don't remember the name of the episode. Really, it's one of my top 10 favorite episodes of Deep Space Nine. So for those who aren't familiar with it, the Jantara is this mystical rite. It's a ritual that all trill hosts have to go through when they um, become a new host, where they're able to remove the memories of individual trill hosts from previous individual trill hosts from the symbiote and then transfer them to another body right and so in this deep space nine episode all of the main characters volunteered to host some of the memories of of dax jesse's symbiote it's a wonderful episode where we get to meet all these great characters that are jesse's previous hosts or dax's previous hosts and so guardian g is going to do the same thing transfer the memories of gray tall previous host to tall into the android body but of course there's a risk that it's not going to work because they've never done this before Right. And it sounds like that was the first time they've heard that. Yeah. And I agree. I thought the same thing, which was like, wouldn't they already know that? Right. But they both agree, both um, Gray and Adira agree that this is, or rather Gray through Adira agrees. I think if Adira objected, Gray would have listened to their objection. Maybe. But that made me laugh. (laughs) Adira translating for Gray. It just reminds me of the ghost whisperer. I don't know if you ever watched that. The ghost would give these big, long, emotional speeches to Jennifer Love Hewitt to give to their loved one. And she would turn to the loved one and say, he says, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) That's all I could think of when I was watching this. Gray was going on and on. And Adira would just, he's grateful. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. So Burnham and Tilly use Book's ship to go find this rogue Kawatmalot named Javini. So it's Gabrielle, Tilly, and Michael Burnham. And then there's another Kawatmalot sister that I don't recall catching her name. I'm not sure they ever gave a name. Yeah. There's a really cute scene where Tilly is being Tilly. Yeah. And she's a little nervous with sister no name. And, you know, Tilly apologizes. And the sister says, you know, you're worried that I'm going to be dismayed by your enthusiasm. I'm not. (laughs) And then, then, you know, Tilly says, absolute candor. I dig that. Yeah. And, you know, you can see that's true because that's really who Tilly is. She's always very honest and upfront with everything. Yes. So, you know, this is actually kind of a good match. And I appreciated Saru's wisdom in suggesting Tilly because she really was the best person to bring. Yeah. So they go off and they 
find uh, where Javini is hiding. It's on a, a sort of like an asteroid or a moon. And Javini beams into the ship and kills Sister No Name and then says, if you choose to live and don't beam down. So, you know, then they're like, well, what are we going to do? And of course, we're going to beam down. And before they left, Gabriella told them they can't bring their phasers. Yeah. Which was like, <laughs> both Tilly and Burnham are like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> and, and then Burnham is like, we can't go in unarmed. And Gabrielle's like, what do you mean unarmed? And gives them one of the Kuatmalot swords. Right. That they have so, no experience uh, with. Sorry? Right, that, exactly. That they have no experience with, yeah. Right. They're going to somehow protect themselves against a master swords person. Right. With swords that they don't really know how to use. So they get to this moon. And as they get there, they realize that they're in this huge chamber. And there's a dead creature lying on the ground with Javini's cloak. And now they're sort of all of a sudden wondering if this isn't a hopeless cause that Javini is trying to follow. Which is what the Kuatmalat does. They bind themselves to hopeless causes. And so suddenly with that particular perspective, they're coming at this whole mystery of the stealing of the dilithium and what Jiminy is doing from a different perspective. Now, why they didn't do that at the beginning? I'm trying to remember now. I thought, did she not mention? uh, Well, I don't think she did mention. She said there must be a reason. And maybe I missed it, but I would have thought that a conversation about a hopeless cause that she might have taken on would have been a little bit more thoroughly discussed. Right. You know, we know that's the Kowatmalats, you know, sort of raison d'etre. Right. And I think you're right. I think it wasn't discussed. I think she did say that she has to have a reason. Right. I don't think it was discussed I in that way. I think she does say something about that Javini must feel her cause is threatened. And I think that was the closest thing that they had a conversation about. Right. It. And there was a conversation which I, I thought was a really good sort of summary of the entire episode was that reasons matter. Yes. That was kind of a theme throughout the entire episode, I thought. You know, the reasons for Grey wanting to accept the Jantara mattered. The reasons for Book joining Stamets on Navarre, which we'll talk about in just a moment, mattered. And, of course, Javini's reasons for stealing the dilithium and killing the Starfleet officer mattered. They didn't necessarily make it justifiable, but there were reasons that were, you know, in understanding those reasons, it helped them avoid more bloodshed. We're going to pause right here for a quick break. We'll be right back. Hey, Doug Gramley here from Yeah, That Can't Be Good. Doug here from the 13th Warehouse. If you are a fan of Eureka, please join Kim, Vicky, Skip, and myself over at Yeah, That Can't Be Good for an episode-by-episode podcast of all things Eureka at EurekaRewatch.com. If you're a fan of Warehouse 13, please join Kim and Vicky over at the 13th Warehouse at the13thwarehouse.com. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit us on Twitter at Eureka Warehouse. And we're back. So let's talk a little bit about Stamets and Book on Navarre. Now, Book decided he wanted to go with Stamets because he wanted to help with understanding what was going on with the anomaly and how this destroyed Quijon and how to avoid this happening again. And I thought Stamets was unbelievably kind. I have that note. That's one of the the two notes that I took. So kind. Yes. Because he said, you know, he tried to dissuade Book, and Book was like, no, I really need to do this. And Stamets finally just said to him, I'm going to need to discuss the destruction of Quijon in very detailed terms. Right. And he didn't want him to go through that trauma again. And I was like, wow, that was such a wonderful, amazing moment for Stamets. (laughs) Exactly, yes. And even later, which we'll get to, I'm sure, when they were going to do the mind melds, 
Stamets was adamant that Book shouldn't have to go through that again. Yes, he said he should not have to relive that trauma. Right. Agreed. It was amazing. So let's talk about that a little bit. Stamets talks to the Science Council. The Science Council then meditates on the data, which apparently is how they process all the information. So there's a lot of quiet time after Stamets discusses everything. And they finally come out of their meditation and say, there is no evidence of tachyons. We can't find it. You know, we've gone through all your data. You can't find it. We can't find it. We can't support this idea of a, an emerging wormhole because we don't have any sign of, ta- of the tachyon. And so then Tarina offers to do a mind meld on Book because Book was there and he saw it. And there was apparently some kind of blue, blue, yeah. blue light yeah. that would be visible in the presence of the tachyons. And so he agrees to do this. And that's when Stamets, you know, tries to protect him and says... You know, you, we don't want him to have to relive this trauma. But Book says, no, I can handle this. I'm going to do this. And then I have to say, this was probably one of the best scenes in Star Trek ever. Tarina does the mind meld with Book. And Book goes back and he sees Leto. And she actually helps him remember that Leto turns around and hears him saying, essentially, that he loves him. And that he acknowledged it because the wonderful little glowy spots on his forehead lit up. He felt it. That was the sign of the catching of that emotion. And we got to see Buck heal to some degree in that moment. And it was really nice. Yes. Really, really nice. Unfortunately, however, there was no signs of blue light. So they were back to square one in that they couldn't check off the checkbox of an emerging wormhole to be able to know how to deal with this anomaly. So they still have no idea what it is. So meanwhile, back on the moon or the asteroid that uh, Burnham and Tilly and Gabrielle and Javini are inside with all these pods, they're starting to realize that this is an entire civilization that are in suspended animation that Javini is trying to protect. And she needs the dilithium in order to be able to move their asteroid out of danger if the anomaly comes. Yes. So that's how we have this sort of attenuated connection to the anomaly. This has become urgent for Javini because of the anomaly. If not for the anomaly, she would not have to have had to steal the dilithium in her in her mind. Right. But instead, Tilly figures out and Burnham figures out how to wake these folks up because they were supposed to be awakened. They were supposed to something has happened and they haven't woken up and they should be awake. And if they're awake, then they can also guide their moon. And Javini doesn't have to protect them. Right. So they figure out how to wake them up. And then they wake them up, (laughs) which seemed very, very simple. Yeah, it was. Um, And, you know, I kind of wonder, you know, why didn't Javini think of that? Maybe I should get somebody here to help me. Yeah. Is the lost cause only supposed to be done by the one person who accepts the cause? Are they not allowed to accept help? You know, I can't imagine that would be the case because she had people with her when she went to steal the dilithium. There you go. So I don't know what that was about. It sounded like she was protecting them until they woke up and that it didn't occur to her that something was wrong and that's why they haven't woken up. Yeah. And maybe if that had occurred to her, maybe she would have tried to have gotten help. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Anyway, so... And then on in our third storyline with Grey, it's taking Grey a long time to wake up. And Adira is convinced that it's not going to happen. And they're very angry that they chose to encourage Gray to do this because they miss Gray and they, you know, Gray is no longer there with them. Right. And it's very stressful. 
So here's my question for you. Where's Tall through all this? With Adira, I believe, right? Right. But where's Tall? Because Tall would be able to reassure them and tell them to be patient and provide comfort in this scary time. And we're not seeing Tall at all. And the reason I'm saying this is, you know, when we see Jadzia and we see Ezri Dax. Now, Ezri Dax went through some difficulties But Dax was still there for her, providing her information. It may have been confusing, and she was not, you know, well-prepared for all of the personalities that came with Dax. But Dax was still there, but we don't seem to see Tall at all. I know they got the memories back. Maybe they can't access them the way a Trill would be able to. Yeah, that's a good good thought. I don't know. That never occurred to me. So they go back to the sickbay, and... They essentially decide to stay with Gray, holding Gray's hand, you know, just supporting Gray until Gray returns. And finally, after Adira falls asleep, Gray squeezes their hand and is coming out of it. And the Janshara transfer has succeeded. Now, see, this was just them messing with me. (laughs) (laughs) Is that what you think it is? When Gray wasn't waking up, I was like, okay, now... They're going to say, this was a failure. We're going to have to make him a hologram. (laughs) (laughs) No, I knew it was just an opportunity for angst. Yeah. And which I'm not a big fan of angst. And this is where I, I, like I said, this is where I would have liked to have seen Tall make an appearance to provide some kind of perspective and support because Tall has lived many lifetimes and there should be some wisdom in there to provide you know, some grounding for this experience. So that's what I was kind of hoping to see, and I didn't. I just got to see angst. Right, and we knew that was coming when they first announced that it's never been done and it might not work, which we didn't know, which nobody seemed to know. I did really enjoy when Gray hugged Culver. Yes. Now the family is whole, and so that that was really nice. Yeah. And then our last scene of this episode is actually a really nice scene where Book is in his ship and he's looking at a holographic projection of Quijon's forest. And, you, you know, you can see that he's starting to heal. And, of course, this kind of healing is going to take a very long time. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. I mean, and it's not linear. You know, there will be two steps forward, one step back kind of thing. But you can see that the healing has started. And it's, it's, very, it's very nice. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the end of the episode. Did I miss anything or anything else you wanted to make sure we discussed? No, I think... I actually did have one other thing that I wrote down, which is when um, President Rillick told Burnham that she was counting on her to, you know, bring back this criminal. And Burnham said, you have my word. (laughs) My my son said, ooh, don't make promises you can't necessarily keep. Right, right. (laughs) And there is some tension there, too, that we should probably talk about. When they c- capture Javini, um, and Gabrielle and Tarina take Javini back to Navarre, there's this undertone that they're not entirely sure that Javini is going to be punished. Right. Uh, which I thought was interesting. Burnham, you know, she's right. This isn't the way, whether or not there was a reason, and she did advocate for them to keep in mind that there was a reason, a valid yes. reason. But this is not a good face for Starfleet. These people stole dilithium. Other people are waiting for this dilithium. They killed a Starfleet officer, and the president let her go, basically. 
uh, trusting that there would be justice on Navarre, but primarily because she wants to stay in Navarre's good graces so that they'll join the Federation again. Exactly. And this is the politics that Michael complains about. And she complained about it in this episode before they even left. Yeah. So, yeah, I got the impression that she probably would not be punished. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. We'll see if this lays, you know, the groundwork for some difficulties in the future. Right. Because this kind of political decision making can do that. Yes. Or maybe they'll just forget about it. Who knows? (laughs) So the other thing I wanted to ask you about is what did you think of the conversation between Vance and Burnham? When he used his orchestra analogy. Yeah, it was not Vance-like for, to No, me. it really wasn't. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Or maybe it is, and this is a side of him that we haven't gotten to see yeah. yet because he's been so, you know, so under mis- pressure. Right. So he says, just for the for our listeners, he says, think of us as an orchestra. You're the first chair violin with showy, challenging solos. I'm the drum section. <laughs> <laughs> and President Rillick is the conductor. When she signals us, we play. It's not our job to know if the cellist is drunk or the woodwinds and brass are at war. Um, I actually disagreed with him on that. I mean, it's a lovely analogy. You know, I'm a music fan and I've been in the choir behind the orchestra, so I can kind of visualize all of this, including the conductor. But the difference between an orchestra and Starfleet is that Starfleet actually has an obligation, at least the Starfleet that we've known has an obligation to do what's right regardless of what authorities tell them to do. Exactly. Exactly. So you can't blindly follow. Yeah. So I'm not sure that I agree with that analogy. And we'll see if that actually comes out later too and that Vance is going to have to, you know, maybe take a step back yeah. on that analogy because of the the oath that he made to Starfleet. So on a scale of 1 to 10, what would you give this episode? Uh, I'll give it an 8 again. Yeah, I'm with an eight too. Yeah, I agree. It was an eight too. And you know, I, I should also add that Tilly, when she joined this mission, she was really phenomenal. So oh, much fun. You know, when Javini shows up, she says, "I choose to live." Really, honestly, <laughs> <laughs> I right. totally choose to live. Yes, <laughs> she was just she was back to the Tilly that we really love from you know like first season. Yeah. All right. So the next episode that we'll be talking about is called "All Is Possible." So we invite our listeners to join us next time when we discuss Star Trek Discovery Season 4, Episode 4, All is Possible. Okay, we'll see you next week. Okay, thank you. You can continue exploring the universe with Moms Going Boldly by following us on Facebook at facebook.com slash momsgoingboldly and on Twitter at momsgoingboldly. The music used on Moms Going Boldly is Without Limits by Ross Bugden Music. On Twitter, at Ross Bugden, licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license, creativecommons.org. You can listen to Moms Going Boldly on Podbean, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Player FM. And we're now also available on Apple Podcasts. Transfer complete.